0: We want you to know you absolutely matter to God, and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. So today, James is going to take us into one of the great divides that exist in our world. It, it, It existed when James wrote this letter in the first century. You best believe it exists today. It's a divide that's present throughout time and history and Civilization after civilization, and I think I can safely say it has caused more conflict, more wars, maybe the greatest number of social ills, and it is the divide between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. We we watch shows like you know um, shows about the rich and famous. Uh, We're kind of fascinated by it, aren't we? Succession, the Kardashians, billions, uh, housewives of Beverly Hills and million-dollar listings and on and on. We know less about the poor. Not many of us know what it's like um, not to be able to afford a car. Or how about having to live in your car for a while? Uh, How about not being able to afford first and last month's deposit to be able to rent? How about not having a stove or a fridge, having to eat actually higher-priced convenience foods and uh, stick them in the microwave because that's just all you can afford? A job uh, where you know dental and prescription would, would never be covered. Our poverty rate in Canada is about 7.4%, 3.6% is what Stats Canada calls deep poverty. It's really hard to get like specific numbers as to what sort of defines poverty in Canada. Some use a metric of like what percentage of your income is spent on the essentials, food and, and housing. Uh, uh, in Canada, low income is defined as, as 36,000 or less. If you're as old as me, you can remember when 36,000 would have seemed like winning the lottery. So, th- so the numbers can be relative, maybe even compared to what part of the country you live in, especially compared to other parts of the world, right? Like more than 700 million of the world's inhabitants live in extreme poverty, uh, which means they live on less than $2 a day. And And some of you have seen poverty firsthand. I know um, our friend Christina has seen it in the poorest country in South America, Guatemala. Um, Elizabeth has seen it right here in, in reserves in Canada. Um, my new friend Rocky, Justice's dad, has, as as vice president of World Vision Canada, has seen it in all kinds of places. I've personally seen it in places like uh, 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 Bolivia, um, Cambodia, uh, Dominican, and, and if you've seen it, you know you just can't unsee it, and nor should you. In a way, you could say the fact that I ha- have been able to travel and have seen it in some ways is my evidence of, of my privilege, right? But if I could, can I just ask you? Um, Use your sanctified imagination with me, if you would. Just allow yourself to be kind of put there for a moment. This is courtesy of something that uh, economist uh, Robert Heilbroner put together to introduce the typical Westerner to the way that many live in the world today. And it's a walkthrough of what it would take to transform the average Canadian home into the typical dwelling of the majority world. So, think of your home, if you would, and then we have to begin by just stripping it of its furniture, okay? Everything goes, beds, chairs, tables, TV, lamps, all that can be left is a few old blankets, uh, a kitchen table, a wooden chair, okay? And then when it comes to clothing, each member of the family can keep their oldest suit or dress and then one shirt or blouse. And the head of the family gets a pair of shoes, but not for the wife or the children. And then come to your kitchen. All the appliances would have to come out. All the cabinets and its its, uh, contents would have to be emptied. All that can stay is a box of matches, a small bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a few moldy potatoes, which I've had to now pull out of my garbage can, because that's, those moldy potatoes will provide much of tonight's meal. We can add a handful of onions or, or, or a bit of dried beans, but that's it. Everything else goes, meat, fresh vegetables, canned goods, whoosh, gone. But not only do we have to strip away the house this way, we have to dismantle the bathroom, shut off the running water, take out all the electric wires, and while we're at it, Take away the house itself. The family's gotta move to something more like your tool shed. Um, The things related to communication go, the internet, newspapers, books. Not that they're missed since you have to take away the family's literacy as well. All that's left is one small radio. Government services have gotta go. No more mail delivery, no more fire department. There is a school but it's three miles away consists of two classrooms. Um, There can't be any hospitals nearby. The nearest clinic is is 10 miles away, and it's tended by no more than a midwife. Um, It can be reached by bicycle, provided the family has a bicycle, which is really unlikely. Uh, Finally, we come to money. The family can be allowed a cash reserve of $5. And that's only allowed to prevent the main breadwinner of the family from experiencing the tragedy that came upon one man who went blind because he couldn't raise the $3.94, which he mistakenly thought he needed to receive admission to the hospital where he could have been cured. Like I could go, I could go on with this thought exercise, but why am I even bringing it up? Well, because James brings it up. He has words for those with money. Uh, He's got words for those without money. He's got uh, wisdom for those who hire, those who are hired, for for the haves and the have-nots. And he's gonna start with the haves in his typical blunt style. So let's jump off where we finished last time. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Here's what he says. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated out of their pay. The wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Now, I don't know, when you read that, you're like, Ugh, that's some heavy stuff. That does not make me feel awesome. But James wants this to be uncomfortable, I think. He's targeting wealthy people who make wealth the center of their life, who even maybe use their wealth to take advantage of others, to take advantage of the poor. Maybe even they gained their wealth by taking advantage of the poor. People who are hoarding money. And and when they do spend it, they just spend it on themselves, living in opulence. And they they made it on the backs of people that they have exploited and cheated. Men women, children who labored for for little or no wages under horrible conditions, and because of their vulnerable status, couldn't do anything about it, even to the point of their death. You know, James isn't using like figurative language here. This this is a reality. It would have been known in that day that if a poor person got in the way of a rich person, well, let's just say, say the poor person had a little bit of land that the rich guy wanted. He could take the poor person to court. And guess what? The poor person wouldn't be able to afford an attorney, wouldn't be able to afford the the people who could research titles and claims. And the rich person could get that land legally and throw that poor person out with nothing, no land, no way of making money, no way of growing food. And James is saying, in essence, killing them. A slow death, malnutrition, starvation, lack of shelter—it it would be their death sentence. Now, none of us would would consider ourselves even remotely that kind of person. We don't have that kind of money, probably, to even begin oppressing a whole class of people. And if we did, we don't have that kind of heart. So you might be wondering if James really has anything to say to us in South Lake in 2023. Well, actually, I think there is. There's a couple challenges in his words for the oppressing rich, which would apply to anyone in this room. I know it it does for me. The first is to realize that wealth is not gonna do us any good in the life to come, Especially, especially if we have just hoarded it for ourselves or used it only for ourselves. That's a lesson for all of us. Um, Yeah, you know, it buys you things, it affords you things, it allows you to rise above some things. If we're honest, sometimes money can just outright fix certain problems. Money, Money can keep you out of lines, out of court, out of mowing your lawn and cleaning your house. Not to mention like first class seats and front row tickets and brand name clothes, all of that. But in the life to come, what if it were actually the very source of your judgment? Not because money in itself is bad, it's not. God gives us the means to earn money and gives us some of the ability to earn large sums of money. You might be doing really, really well. You're you're good at earning. You're gifted at it. But if you're smart, you'll see it as a God thing as a God gift. You'll see that you've been given that money for the purpose of honoring him, of, uh, of using it in ways that advance his purposes. You'll invest in serving the least and the lost. Uh, that would be smart. Um, but we can also be dumb. Dumb would work like this. The more you make, the more you put away, the less you give. Um, God brought the gain into your life, but instead of living simply and increasing your giving and doing important things with it, you just, what, buy bigger houses, better vacations, more expensive clothes, higher-end furniture, better tech toys. Isn't that, I, I mean, I don't know. D- don't you find that's the way it goes? We tend to live at the level of, uh, of the money we make, and if your income trends up, so does your lifestyle. And generosity, instead of increasing, statistically, it often goes down, in fact. James Cash Penny, in 1902, founded what would become J.C. Penney, very good. And the J.C. Penney department store chain, um, he tells, he started out earning $10 a week. And he gave 10% of everything he made faithfully. Uh, So that was $1 off the top to the church. He said he he knew it belonged to God. And then his business began to grow, grow a lot, until 10% was like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So he said he had a little talk with God about it. And he reminded God that his tithe was now huge, kind of out of proportion. Things were getting out of hand. And, and he said that he sensed God's answer almost audibly um, and that it was brief and to the point, but, but clear as day. And God was like, all right, JC, um, I'll be reasonable. I'll see to it that you go back down to earning $10 a week. Then you'll only have to give me a dollar. Uh, Penny said that he never complained again. I, I, I mentioned that there were two challenges in James for us here. And the first is to realize that wealth is not going to do us any good in the life to come if we just hoard it for ourselves. The second challenge, though, is that we've got to be just in our financial dealings with other people. You know, if we owe someone we must pay them for what we owe. If, if we employ someone, it's got to be at a fair and just wage. If we are ever in a position of influence or authority or oversight, it is to be exercised in a way that, that tries to give instead of just take. If you're an employer or a manager, that's your challenge this morning. And for those of you who might be thinking, well, I don't have anyone under my employ, I I would push back on that and and ask you to try thinking of that in a more encompassing way. Like, what about the waiter or waitress who serves you at a restaurant, who relies maybe solely or mostly on tips? You know, for that hour or so that you're eating, that person you could say is kind of working for you. And I, I don't know if this is still true, but there was a time when, when waitresses told me that they used to hate the after church Sunday crowd because they were what? Cheap, notoriously bad tippers. That shouldn't be our reputation. I, I knew somebody who would leave a, uh, a, it's like a pamphlet that said, here's a tip, And then you open it up and it's the gospel story. I mean, it'd be one thing if they put a hundred dollar bill in there, but um, like, come on. And so who do you have maybe mowing your lawn or delivering your pizza or babysitting your kids? Most of us have a chance to do right by someone technically under our employee. So so that's the haves. But James has things to say to folks on the other side of the equation too. Surely James doesn't have anything to say to the have-nots. Their life is hard enough and they don't need to be challenged by James as well, do they? Well, sure they do. Have-nots aren't inherently more noble. Now, I kind of made a case that relatively speaking, we are, as, as Canadians, generally well taken care of. But here's the thing though. I'll bet at some point in your life, you have found yourself in the have not category um, you know again, maybe that's relative to Canadian living, but most of us know what it's like to not have enough money to not have a job to suffer, to be deprived, to be alone to be victimized, to be without power, without means, without connections. you might be in a in a pretty tough have-not season right now. And here's what James would say to you. He says, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. Or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. What does James have to say to the have nots? Patiently persevere. Most of us know what patience is it's it's about waiting, it's about enduring, doing it without complaining or whining. But I don't think James is after, like, sort of patience in general. Um, He just set up the divide between the haves and the have nots. And that's not a short-term deal, right? That's often a long-term deal, maybe even a lifelong scenario. Like, it's one thing to have patience for like a temporary roadblock waiting for the rain to come, for a, a crying child, for slow traffic on the Don Valley. It's another thing to have patience needed for years, years. The barren womb the prodigal child, the the difficult marriage, the chronic pain, um, those aren't short-term things. And short-term patience won't get you through them. So what's needed is long-term patience. Now, I'll tell you how you won't get long-term patience. You won't get long-term patience on short-sighted vision. If your focus is on sort of this life only, you'll find it really difficult to get through this life only stuff. Let me talk to you who are followers of Christ. And, and if you're not, you can listen in. You know this life isn't everything, right? This is a mist. This is, this is shadows. The real life hasn't even started yet. Jesus told us over and over again to take our eyes off this world and to focus them on eternity, on on the life to come. And one of the big reasons is because that's when the pain and the suffering and the anguish and the injustice of this life will finally be resolved in the life to come. The The Bible's really clear about this. For those who are in Christ, just look at the words from the last book of the Bible, Revelation He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Nothing impure will ever enter it. You know, when will the tears finally be wiped away for good? Not in this life, but in the life to come. And when you study those who have endured just horrific thing for years and years and years, or even for a lifetime, you see this in play. Think about um, what are often referred to as the great African-American spirituals, You know, written and sung during the crucible of slavery. Some, some of you know these songs, but you may not know uh, that that's the environment from which they came from. Songs like Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, uh, swing low, sweet chariot um, he 's got the whole world in his hands, wait in the water, the lyrics filled with the kind of of patience that waited for liberation, uh, a liberation that that few would experience in their lifetime and maybe that they felt anyone would experience in their lifetime it was It was about waiting for the Lord to return. Um, or when they would be returned to him, I suppose, which allowed them to live with a, a strength, a dignity, a perseverance, that was simply not of this world. Uh, they knew that a day was coming when wrongs would be righted, when justice would flow down like a river. You may have heard this song, but have you really paid attention to the lyrics? Swing low, sweet chariot, Coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan. What did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down. But still my soul feels heavenly bound. If you get there before I do, tell all my friends, I'm coming too. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. I, I wonder if... Some of our newer songs like I Can Only Imagine or Hymn of Heaven may even now be providing some of that hope uh, and endurance for people right now in brutal, unfixable life situations. It's interesting, I I checked, we don't have a ton of new worship songs about heaven. And I wonder if it's because we don't long for it in the same way that generations past have. Because, I don't know, who needs heaven when we kind of got it good here? Or, Or at least that's the thinking. There will come a time in your life where you will need the hope of heaven to sustain you for the long term. And remember, James didn't just say patiently persevere by remembering the life to come, but to do it with a certain spirit, a certain attitude. Remember that last line? Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. Now, let's just stop there for a second, kind of marvel about what we just read. Remember, James took on those who were wealthy, those who made wealth the center of their life and had maybe even taken advantage of the poor. But then he turns to the poor who've been subjected to all that, and after encouraging them that this life is not the last word, that a better life is to come, he tells them not to grumble or complain. Grumble and complain against who? He said they're brothers and sisters. Whoa, hold on. James is writing a letter to who? Christians, yeah, Christians. Followers of Christ. The wealthy? Well, he just took them to the woodshed and the poor who were subject to them, well guess what, they're both in the same church. Like you gotta understand, this Christian movement, this was a radical coming together of people who would never have mixed prior. Like the rich together with the poor, male with female, Jew with Gentile, Roman official with slave. Like all found themselves one in Christ, equal within the church, on a level playing field before God. The poor in a Christian assembly could be found teaching the rich. A slave could be the pastor of a Roman centurion. Like unheard of. I can't overstate how, how much of a cultural revolution this was. And it was brand new. And so James is trying to help this new community be that new christ like community, he wants the church to be the church when a letter like this came to a church, you know what they would do they 'd hold it until they could all gather together, and then it would be read aloud to everyone at once. So, so picture this um, uh, and, and then think about like this group kind of huddled together and think about some of the words that we 've already read in this series. Uh, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and no doubt there would be someone sitting there in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, maybe a whole bunch of people, in fact. And another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes, and yeah, there would absolutely be some of them there assembled in real time. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, which they had probably been doing, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, and there was likely a poor person sitting on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Here's another one. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, and so you scheme and kill to get it? You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them? Here's another one. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. Don't criticize and judge each other. What right do you have to judge your neighbor? And then they get to the part of the letter that we're looking at today look here, you rich people. Hear the cries of the field workers whom you've cheated out of their pay, the wages you held back. And then to those who had been subject to that, he says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. Awkward. (laughs) They're all together. It's like... It's like how some of you feel sometimes, I promise. I'm not reading your diaries or whatever, but you're like, you can't make eye contact with me after because you think it was about you. I, I promise you it's not. But this is a bit of a tense Sunday morning among friends, and it, it's a good kind of tense, though, because this is really the anvil on which authentic Christian community was forged, right? In fact, this sort of thing was the catalyst for Christianity spreading like wildfire throughout the world. Because you know what? They actually took this stuff to heart. They became this new Christ centered community, and the world has never seen anything like it. You know, by, by 100 AD, we figure there were about 7,500 followers of Jesus. In the mid 300s AD, over 30 million called themselves followers of Christ. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons was letters like this and how radical a vision of community could look like. You know, the second century writer Tertullian noted and was just amazed at the pagan reaction to the Christian community. And his his quote was, see how they love each other? Oh man, wouldn't that be a great reputation? Instead of the waitress saying, oh, here come the crappy tippers, it's like, ah, oh, see how they love each other. Well, let's read how James wraps this section up. He gives one last word of encouragement to those in pain, to those who are going through a, a tough season in their life. In the final two verses of the section, here's what he writes. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. By the way, if you've never read about Job, his endurance in the Old Testament, man, he goes through this horrific series of events, but he never walks away from God. He he never turns his back on God. He stayed true to God. He fixes his eyes on the goodness of God and on the eternal life to come. And in the end... God even blesses him in this life more than he could have imagined. James finishes, he says, you can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. I I guess I'll leave you with this. Do do you believe that the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy towards you? Do you believe that? If you are suffering, if you're experiencing injustice, exploitation, financial ruin, do you still believe that he's full of tenderness and mercy? That whether in this life or the next, Jesus will make all things right, make things perfect. Whether you are in the 1% whether you are a hoarder or an oppressor, an unfair boss, or whether you are part of the poor and the powerless, you know, one day we will all stand before Jesus and submit to Jesus. Listen to what the psalmist says talking about that day as we close. Psalm 22. From the four corners of the earth, people are coming to their senses, running back to God, long lost families are falling on their faces before him god has taken charge from now on he has the last word all the power mongers are before him worshiping all the poor and powerless worshiping along with those who never got it together they're worshiping our children and their children will get in on this as the word is passed along from parent to child. Babies not yet conceived will hear the good news that God does what he says. Amen?